What is the human microbiome and how is nutrition related to gut health? And what's the impact on our physical and mental well-being? These are some of the things we're discussing on today's podcast. Hi everyone, I'm Matt Eastland. And I'm Lakshmi Balthasan, and this is the Food Fight Podcast, exploring the greatest challenges facing the food system and the innovations and entrepreneurs looking to solve them. The Food Fight is brought to you by EIT Food, Europe's leading innovation community working hard to make the food system more healthy, sustainable, and trusted. If you haven't already, please follow the podcast and find out more about what we do at eitfood.eu. And in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the link between the microbiome and happy guts and why that's important for our health. And for this conversation, we're joined first by Lisa McFarlane, one of the CEO and founders of The Gut Stuff, which is the first e-commerce online shop for gut health in the UK. Thanks for joining us today, Lisa. Thank you for having me. This is the best part of my day. It drags me out of the day-to-day of a startup, so it's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Thanks so much, Lisa. And we're also joined today by Anthony Finbo, the CEO of Eagle Genomics. Eagle Genomics is a startup that develops form solutions addressing complex microbiome and genomics data for clients within the healthcare, personal care, and the agri-tech sectors. They're also one of EIT Foods' rising food stars. So thanks so much for joining us today, Anthony. Thanks, Lakshmi. Delighted to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. And thanks so much, Matt, uh, for giving me the chance to speak alongside Lisa, whom I've known for four years now. We're both pioneers in this space. Before we kind of go through your backstories, which I know are really, really fascinating, can't wait. Can you just sort of help us set the scene about what we're talking about? So what is the microbiome and why is it important? Lisa, maybe we can start with you. So, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago what the microbiome was, I would have been like, what? But essentially we have, you know, a number of pathogens, viruses, bacteria that live in, around and on us that we're just starting to learn how influential they are. The reason that we relate them mostly to gut health is because most of them are housed in our large intestine. They do everything. They're kind, they're smart, and they're important. And if you look after them, they'll look after you. So they do everything from, you know, regulating your blood sugar levels. They teach your immune system, who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. Literally, they do so much. They're far more clever than our human cells. Would you agree, Anthony? And I I hate talking about the scientists, science in front of scientists. So that's like the layman terms version (laughs) of the microbiome. But yeah, so they're just starting to, science is starting to discover just really how important it is. Amazing. Yeah, I think uh, absolutely concur with uh, Lisa. And, you know, in terms of the genomic content of the gut microbiome, it's extremely significant. We're perhaps in terms of genes, 1% human, 99% bacterial. From an evolutionary perspective, we've co-evolved with these creatures so that they can augment what the human genome isn't able to produce. In the narrow sense, the microbiome is that bioreactor in your gut that transforms what you eat into what you need and tunes your immune system. In the broad sense, as far as I'm concerned, the microbiome is the lion's share of the biomass on Earth in every environment. As Lisa says, we're just starting to understand the importance of this, uh, perhaps just before it's too late. Thanks so much, Anthony, for giving us your views on that. So you have a very interesting story about how you got into this microbiome space. We saw online that you got interested in the microbiome space after it helped you recover from a bad illness. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to become the CEO of Eagle Genomics. You know, I did quite a number of things before I got to Eagle Genomics. I started life as an apprentice aircraft engineer, and then I worked for uh, my first startup, uh, a laser electro-optics company, before completely 
vectoring away, qualifying as a corporate lawyer, and then working in investment banking for about five years, privatizing, amongst other things, East German heavy industry, as the two Germanys came back together. You know, through that period, and indeed beyond, when I took my first role in a startup as a CEO in a company that was, in fact, listed at the peak of the internet boom, dual listed on the London Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, uh, let's just say that I was a bit stressed and uh, I ended up, you know, collapsing with an autoimmune challenge, um, autoimmune disease, which uh, nearly killed me. I was told by doctors that my hemoglobin count in my blood was not compatible with life. So I was close to the edge. I had multiple blood transfusions, steroid therapy, and goodness knows what else, until I eventually you know, turned it around and, uh, and made a full recovery. But whilst I was recovering, I picked up a copy of The Economist. This was 2005. I picked up a copy of The Economist in the hospital bed and read my first article about microbiome, got fascinated, started reading up on the literature. Didn't think too much about it until you know, quite a bit later, 2015, when I was asked to come to meet with the board at Eagle Genomics to talk about how we might um, you know, build the business together. At the time, the company was focused on DNA, human DNA primarily, trying to help biotech and pharma companies better understand human DNA. But we had one engagement uh, with one company that was on microbiome, in fact, helping them understand oral microbiome at the time. And it just looked to me like that was the direction we should take the business in away from what was a highly competitive space looking at human microbiome, competing with a range of well-funded U.S. venture-backed businesses towards the microbiome, trying to help big companies interested in the microbiome space better understand their data. So, you know, it's a bit, a bit fortuitous. It just stimulated me from a very early stage when I read that article and when I found this opportunity at Eagle and particularly this focus on microbiome, it just seemed like that was the most appropriate thing for us to focus on. And ever since then, we've been, uh, you know, I think doing a great job in helping some major, major companies uh, better understand their microbiome data. Thanks very much for sharing your story, Anthony. It's very similar to a lot that we hear from other entrepreneurs that have been on the podcast, you know, accidentally falling into the space. And Lisa, I mean, I, I, I assume your story is not quite the same, but I know that it's also very, very interesting. So you're one of a one of a twin, right? So you're part of the Mac Twin DJs originally, and I'm just really fascinated. How did you go from or well, doing what you're what you're doing before to moving into this space? Yeah, I guess similar to Anthony, very randomly. But actually, in retrospect, I could probably preface the story by saying that I was actually meant to go to uni to do medicine and my sister was meant to do business and law. So the uh, world has come round in retrospect, but the journey there <laughs> was random. So, yeah, we, you know, we were brought up in working class Scotland on a diet of deep fried pizza and chips and 10 Lambert and Butler for lunch. Science and wellness was definitely not something that we were used to, but we did have a curiosity for what was different between us as identical twins. And we were on a radio station called One Extra at the time, which is quite a young audience. And we were volunteering for Twin Research, which is the research facility under Tim Spector at King's. The reason we volunteered was essentially firstly they wanted younger sets of twins that were up for anything which Alana and I very much were and secondly we had really different health pathways growing up so Alana had juvenile chronic arthritis and I didn't and they couldn't work out why because it wasn't hereditary. The American Gut Project had just happened. They knew that they wanted to 
start to look into twins and see if nutrition had an effect on the microbiome. We were the first set of twins to ever have that done. So essentially, long story short, we sent off stool samples every day for two months. For the first month, we were told to only drink alcohol and eat processed foods, which was fun for a week. And then it was not (laughs) so fun doing that. Then they put us on a Mediterranean diet for the second month. Turns out throughout the whole experiment, our gut bacteria was only around 30% the same at any one time. You know, this meant two things. Firstly, that we could change it fairly drastically in the time that we had. And secondly, mm-hmm. that if we as identical twins can't be sold the same diet and don't have the same microbiome, then, then everyone's basically, you know, we, if we're strangers and everyone's pretty unique. So, yeah, and then I guess how it started the business, we set up the gutstuff.com purely because our friends were like, one minute you're on the Brits red carpet interviewing pop stars and the next minute you're at Reading University talking about probiotics. What is going on? And we were like, just that gut stuff, just that gut stuff accidentally we were kind of filling a gap at that point the microbiome industry the scientists weren't really in different silos weren't really speaking to each other so immunologists weren't necessarily speaking to gastroenterologists clinicians who definitely weren't speaking to the public so we were essentially just putting all the information that we were learning and I guess asking scientists about lifestyle choices based on the science that was coming out which was quite a strange concept at the time really The food industry was quite disparate at the time, so big strategics making things for a long time that people didn't necessarily know were good for their gut health to small artisan fermenters making kimchi in their kitchen. And then the pharma industry was making all these incredible products that consumers didn't know about. So naturally, we were plugging all those gaps and not just plugging the gaps from a communication perspective, but talking about it in a way that was quite pop culture and different. And now, yeah, we have a business of lots of staff and (laughs) I'm trying to retire from DJing, so. (laughs) Anthony, so why do you think we should care about our gut health from an overall health and well-being perspective? What is the data that you're seeing telling us? Well, I think um, we're still super early in the journey. I think everyone in the industry will tell you that. And one of the problems we have with the microbiome, in contrast to human genomic DNA data, there are sparse data. There aren't enough data. You see a lot of companies uh, spinning up in the space, particularly in the personal nutrition space, trying to capture data from a range of sources, you know, gut microbiome test kits, you know, in the same way as 23andMe, providing the kits for you to sample your oral human mm. DNA, there are kits on the market to enable that, uh, a similar kind of capture, but the, the data sets are small and it's very, very difficult. I think the primary advantage of that kind of approach is you get a lot of metadata. You get people who are taking uh, the, the test, providing the samples, describing their challenges or whatever, and those data can be correlated in some way, shape or form alongside the, the microbiome genomic data. Uh, but uh, we're trying to move ever more towards function, trying to understand what these microbes do. And that's a really challenging endeavor. You have what I would describe as the traditional sort of biopharma medical approach, which is to try and identify a particular marker or a particular microbe or a particular strain of microbe and you know correlate its presence or absence with a particular phenotype. That's a challenging approach. Um, what I think is really fascinating is the analogy, which is attractive for me, which is that it is the song, not the singer. The song continues to be sung irrespective of who's singing it until it can no longer be sung anymore because uh, we've dropped verses. By that, I mean that there are a range of microbes, fungi, viruses, uh, parasites, etc. in the gut. And 
I think one thing that is certain is that diversity in the gut correlates with health. Lack of diversity in some way correlates with uh, disease. But um, if you take out certain microbes and substitute they are substituted. Uh, evolutionary the metabolism across the chain, if you like, is uh, maintained through substitution. That makes it incredibly difficult to understand what's actually going on there. And then you think about the ecology effect, you know, the overall effect of the ecology on the host, the human host, or the root of a plant, or whatever. It's an extremely challenging uh, domain. And so trying to capture the data is a major challenge. Trying to create a robust data fabric so that you can explore those data is a major challenge. And then providing the mechanisms to link the understanding of the individual microbe in an ecology and the ecology on the host is a major challenge. So I think um, we're at the dawn of a new era in trying to understand that. We talk about networking microbiome science. By that, we mean understanding the impact of an individual microbe in a network, but also networking this domain of science into our models of disease and wellness because without it uh, they are you know they're missing a major component uh, if not wrong and and i mean and to, it's interesting you'd say about this is like the dawn of a new era it seems to me that over what about five years ago ten years ago everyone was like oh yakol activia mm. you know everybody knows about that but it seems like very recently or certainly to us that the phrase microbiome is now on almost everybody's lips you know everybody's talking about the microbiome it's exploded as a term mm. so why has this become so trendy and important now i mean lisa maybe given your what you do maybe you can talk us through it it's a culmination of a lot of things so it's people creating products within the space because they know that the trend's coming it is people looking for answers because the current models and systems don't work i think as well like one of the main things i'll say is the confusion lies in with consumers i think digestive health and gut health and i think People don't really understand. That's why it's linked with so many other clinical issues, you know, IBS, Crohn's, and and it gets a bit murky. And I think mm. that when it starts to be commercialised into food products, it's easier for people to pick that bit apart. So I think that's right. why that... So, you know, and I guess we, we always say, like, fermenting didn't start in East London, <laughs> despite popular belief. And I think actually the reason it's a cumulative effect of people kind of knowing what that stuff is about and then hearing about it in places they wouldn't expect. And the distinction between gut health and digestive health is starting to be teased apart, sort of. And also how we share information is a lot more quick. And a lot of brands are now recognizing and realizing that they have to educate the consumers alongside trying to sell those products. So... I would say that's my, Anthony might have a different view because he's got more of like a B2B perspective on it. But I think, you know, we are very much direct to consumer. And, and also like we've definitely seen, so we did the first study five years ago. And, you know, as a startup, when stuff is falling out of the sky, you know, you're in a new <laughs> place of growth. We knew quite quickly that we had a business on our hands, which is an unusual place to be in. Yes, we were shoveling stuff up the hill day to day, mm. <laughs> trying to get people to understand. But, you know, we have food products now in grocery and in mainstream areas. We were on Sky News last week. You know, it's getting Amazing. mainstream quickly, but we have to do it in a way that isn't sensationalized. It's really important that we teach people that this is very, very new and having a bit of sauerkraut ain't going to cure your depression, etc. despite what other news outlets will tell you. And I think that actually we need to pull back 
some of the awareness because people still have a binary relationship with food. So good food, bad food, foods, alcohol, no alcohol. And teaching them about the nuance of the grey areas of the science and where we're at is difficult. And I think we need to step back to do that. Incredible. So same question to you, Anthony. You mentioned in your earlier story that when you came on board at Eagle Genomics, the company was particularly focusing on human genomics rather than the microbiome, and you were instrumental in spearheading that transition. But when you started, were your clients already interested in the gut health microbiome space, or is this something that you had really pushed for? No, I mean, I think, I think you know, as an entrepreneur, the thing is... Um, you can't find yourself in a position where you're market making because that's not an investable proposition. You just have to wait for the market to evolve or you have to find the you know, the pocket of activity in the market that's attractive. And the microbiome enable us to vector towards personal care, cosmetics, food and agri-bio businesses away from biotech and pharma in the short term. But, you know, when we're talking to food businesses, we're, you know, we're talking to food uh, companies that are looking at alternatives to traditional proteins, plant-based, microbial-derived proteins, and then eventually cellular meats. And they're all, you know, trying to compete to transform the industry and looking at gut health as a basis to potentially supplant the alternatives there. But I I think um, what Alana and Lisa have been doing uh, to raise the awareness is inspirational stuff. But I think it's, it's just pushing against the open door, which is the zeitgeist, which is that people are starting to recognize that we are a hollow biont. We are an organism in an ecology. It can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned, because, um, you know, when we think about microbiome, as I said, it's beyond the gut, it's beyond the skin, the scalp, but it's the soil. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the, you know, the, the film, which is raising tremendous awareness, Kiss the Ground. But you know, when we think about the climate challenge, uh, people talk about planting trees to try and remove carbon from the atmosphere. But the trees effectively are the conduits that remove the carbon dioxide and transfer the carbon into the microbes, which fix the carbon in the soil, unless we till the soil or unless we fertilize the soil such that we decimate the soil microbiome. And when we think about alternative proteins, the industry is going to be built on the back of precision fermented microbiome derived proteins. And McKinsey and Company, Boston Consulting Group, Henderson Institute, they talk about the microbe as the unit of currency for the bio-revolution. And so understanding microbes is a frontier in so many respects. I've read a report recently from a group called Rethink X, which is truly out there. But they are talking about the second domestication. The first domestication hundreds of thousands of years ago when we evolved to an agrarian society cultivating plants, you know, herding animals for food. The second domestication is domesticating the microbe so that the microbe can be put to work to generate the products of tomorrow. And not just the food products, the alternatives to plastic. We're seeing IPO after IPO after IPO trying to harness the power of the microbe towards a new business endeavor. But what I love about this is it's towards a more sustainable future, not... um, sustainability, if you like, as a gloss on the business, but as the business, because as both McKinsey and and Boston Consulting Group say, this is going to liberate tens of trillions of dollars of economic value over the next 10 to 20 years. And I guess I can add to that on a very grassroots level. We do a lot of talks in schools and universities. And when we talk about gut health, the penny starts to drop when people realise that actually farm to plate, not having sterilised cubed vegetables that you have in your thing, like fermented foods, all of these things benefit one another. 
as Anthony says, that tidal wave and shift change will happen quickly when it comes because actually it's a solution for not just health, it's a solution for a lot of other things, you know, and it's difficult to sleep at night when you know you're on the precipice of something like this <laughs> and it doesn't make for a great dinner table conversation when you talk to your friends all the time about it. But, you know, it, if I wanted an easy life, I would have stayed in the music industry. The thing that really kind of kept propelling Alana and I towards this was how our minds continually continued to be blown every day when we learned something new and you know we've recently just got B Corp pending as well and actually when it comes oh, to social impact and thank you it's a very long it's a very long process but it's, it's worth it I think as a, as a small business we're at the stage where we can start to make decisions that based on social impact alongside having a commercial business and that's important to us but yeah we've I've realized going through that process how linked it all is and how much each part of it benefits each other really that's really fascinating actually something we're we're talking about more and more uh, eit food particularly with a focus on regenerative agriculture and it's very much about that kind of soil microbiome and how everything's kind of connected and that piece around sustainability which is incredible i mean just to talk about or focus in on the health aspect a little bit can one of you talk us through like you know what affects our microbiome you know i'm assuming diet has a big role to play but anthony based on your kind of stress experience i'm also assuming that it goes way beyond that so what are the things we need to be looking out for in terms of making sure that we have good health and therefore you know a good gut health well i'd say of course trying to understand food food as a if you like a, a stimulus or a perturbation on the microbiome and then the impact of dysbiosis uh, or eubiosis, healthy microbiome on health. You know, trying to understand the causal links is the major challenge uh, there. But, you know, we're, we're breaking through slowly. One of our investors, Laszlo Barabashi, who's a sort of leading thinker on network science, he talks about the foodome. We know just as little about the molecular and chemical constituents of our foods as we know about the gut microbiome itself. And we see this now plethora of startups emerging, looking at micronutrients and that's great, but how do we understand whether those micronutrients are indeed nutrients and how they're going to improve our health? So I think uh, we, we've got to understand more about the constituents of our food, more about how food over short and long-term period transforms the microbiome and how the microbiome itself interacts with the host. So that's the frontier, and that's driving the art and the science in so many ways. But of course, the other major point, which is, you know, how I came to this is the damage done by antibiotics. We see the uh, acknowledgement uh, of the you know antibiotic resistance uh, challenge, and we focus our attention on not administering as many antibiotics. You know, doctors being told not to administer as many antibiotics, and then we look upstream with our narrow focus towards the animals and say we should stop using antibiotics in rearing animals. We are flushing all sorts of uh, antibiotics down into the sewer systems and the resistant microbes are growing there and the resistant microbes are growing in the soil. And if we keep using, you know, fertilizers that decimate or damage soils, we're encouraging the microbes that can resist uh, in the soil as well. So I think we've got to look at all these challenges as interlinked once again. You know, we are trying to work at that frontier, providing large businesses with the infrastructure using network science to understand the interactions between the foods, the microbiome and the host. And I think the, you know, the industry is accelerating, as Lisa says. 
Thanks, Anthony. And Lisa, you know, when people come to you and sadly, as it turns out, often in the toilets, when they're <laughs> asking you about this space and they kind of want to know where they should start, I mean, what are the first things that you want to be saying to people about, you know, the, the things which affect your gut health? Yeah, so I guess they can be quite neatly bucketed into things that aren't within your control and the things that are within your control. And I guess the things that are out with your control, how you were born, you know, where you breastfed, was it cesarean birth? I mean, I was an 80s baby, over-sanitised. <laughs> um, obviously now, <laughs> antibiotics use, as Anthony touched upon, over-sanitisation, sedentary lifestyles, not being outside in nature. When we actually wrote the first book... My mum always goes, why is everyone talking about this now? It's not been so preachy. And I think that context piece is really important of like what, why we're talking about it now and what we can control. So that's all the stuff that's kind of out with our control. Can we change it now? Yes. Kiss dogs, get out of nature. <laughs> Lick the floor, as Anthony said. But also thinking about the other things that can affect it, to your point before, so the lifestyle changes, you know, sleep. Your gut bugs have a circadian rhythm like you do. Really important, the gut-brain axis. You know, historically, we thought that was a one-way system. So there's something called the vagus nerve. Unfortunately, nothing to do with Las Vegas, which is a physical connection between your gut and brain. We thought before that that was a one-way system. We now know that that actually there's more pathways going up than there are coming down. Neurotransmitters are like the phone line is basically the vagus nerve and the neurotransmitters are like the WhatsApp constantly talking to your um, <laughs> your brain. They speak to each other all the time. And I think that link, you know, if you saw the person that you fancy you get butterflies in your stomach, etc. We knew that there was a link there, but now we know that it's two-way is really important and actually just knowing that empowers a lot of people to know that nutrition and potentially that link could be a tool in their armory it's not a solution but it could be a tool in the armory and then secondly the main thing that you have within your control is to tune into your own body you know none of us really do that until you get to the point that Anthony did or until unless you're hungover <laughs> and I think that Nobody does that and we always say that's the first place to start and empower yourself with the knowledge because I think, you know, even biologically people are like, do you mean my stomach? And you're like, sort of, but there's a lot of other stuff involved as well. So knowing some of those links can empower you to start to make better decisions for your health and also knowing that it's not just about what you eat, it's how you eat and all the other aspects. So, you know, mindfully eating, chewing your foods, all these other things that are within our control, are accessible and are affordable. Unfortunately, it is not a magic pill that has come from a lab. It is all this boring stuff like fibre, tuning into your body, getting a good night's sleep. Like it's not particularly sexy or innovative just yet in terms of what we can say to people. You know, in the future, I would love to have toilets that give you a poo reading and there'd be a personalised probiotics, etc. But for now, it's basically going back to what your grandparents told you. Got it. Mm, okay. Yeah, so that's really interesting. You know, you talked about the balance and all the things that can impact gut health and that there's clearly no magic bullet. But, you know, there are clearly some products out there that claim to be. And, you know, it'd be really great to sort of unpick that with you. So to start off with, you know, there are sort of two key products that we hear about all the time. Probiotics, prebiotics. It'd be great to hear from your opinion what those words mean. So let's start with prebiotics. So Anthony will probably give you a really scientific no, <laughs> version what? of this, but it's essentially the food for the bacteria that's already in there. I think it's an easier concept for consumers to grasp 
because people are like, oh yeah, probiotics, they don't, you know, do they survive a stomach acid? Like there's so, <laughs> so many variables with probiotics. And I think prebiotics are simpler. You know, we can get them through food as well as supplementation if that's what you want to go for. The problem that we have in the UK specifically with prebiotics and probiotics is that you are not allowed to say it on pack and you're absolutely not allowed to say any health benefits that they could potentially come with them, which is great because, you know, that should be the case. They should be regulated, but it does leave consumers a bit confused as to how and why, you know, what mm. the, even if you can't say it on pack, it makes it very difficult. We've launched a fibre bar food product. We wanted to go into snacking because it was... Well, from a business perspective, a white space in the market. But from our perspective was that people still struggle with functional foods because they want it to have an effect immediately rather than being a swap or a choice. And that's something that we really, really want to change within the food industry. It shouldn't be a solution. It should be potentially a better option. And it should be the same price as confectionery and shouldn't be at a premium in health food, hidden in health food stores. Um, so that was something that was really important to us. And I guess the probiotics thing as well is I would just urge people to ask themselves why they're taking a probiotic. So, and people look at 1 billion, trillion, squillion cultures, which <laughs> means nothing to Joe Blogs. And actually it's about the strains of bacteria. So are you taking it for traveler's diarrhea? Great, because there's a lot of studies to suggest that that's a good idea. And I think that, you know, I, we always say to people, go on to PubMed, it's for a rainy day, but type in the strain and you'll see which bacteria have been through which clinical trials. And I think that is an effort and a big ask for consumers, but something that's really important because it gets you out of the headspace of a solution and into of, oh, right, okay, it's about strains. Do I need that strain? Why am I taking a probiotic? Rather than the relationship that we all have with supplementation where a lot of it is expensive we <laughs> and an excuse for not adding on for if you've not make, been making good lifestyle choices. And I think actually peeling it back and going, what? Well, let's look at the basics first and then look at all that stuff second. But yeah, sorry, that was very long-winded. It's food for the good bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lisa, can I just ask, so we constantly hear like everyone's always saying prebiotics and probiotics. What's the difference? You know, what should people actually be caring about between the two? Both. So uh, if you think of it as the probiotics are the party goers, so you want lots of different types of them at the party and the prebiotic is the buffet. So you want people to drink and have a good time at the party. So yeah, you need them both. <laughs> Your science comm skills are spot on. I must say. Amazing. I, these are all of the things that I'm now going to remember forever. <laughs> and Anthony, from your perspective, you, know, you have clients working in the healthcare space, so prebiotics and probiotic space must be quite important. How are your clients taking a scientific approach to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're all focused on the same goal, which is how do you prove that uh, a particular food is healthy, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, there is the stratification, as Lisa says, pre, pro, and postbiotics. Um, and, and Lisa mentioned, you know, uh, people are concerned about probiotics, the microbes themselves, because, you know, if you introduce cocktails of these or consortia, do they survive the journey to the gut? And of course, we have to think about, you know, the tube, by the way, uh, as having niche microbiome at a number of stages on the path. But the question is, you know, how do you define these 
criteria, these categories, and how do you determine whether they can deliver a benefit? And indeed, if it's a therapeutic benefit, then it has to stand the test of a therapeutic claims uh, process. So the customers, the major enterprises, and all the food companies are trying to understand how to deliver a microbiome-based product claim. So what we're trying to do is provide this evidential basis to take the customers we're working with along the scientific journey from exploratory analysis, hypothesis elicitation, trying to create hypotheses which can actually cut muster. So one of the challenges with the kind of scientific method is a focus on, you know, the double-blind placebo-controlled study as a basis to generate a result. Well, that's great because it proves that you're doing robust science. It tells you nothing about the impact for an individual. So there is an evolution away from evidence-based science or evidence-based medicine towards medicine-based evidence because we have the data structures now to to take the individual to understand how an individual is responding to a particular food or drug or therapeutic or whatever and factor that in using robust data management structures to try and elicit signals. And when we think about microbiome, you know, the traditional approach presents a real challenge because isolating microbes, developing hypotheses to generate results without taking into account the ecology effect doesn't yield results that are interesting. So this is a major challenge. Now we're seeing now, in fact, last year, last summer, the European Food Standards Authority issued calls for people to help them to understand how to evaluate microbiome-based product claims. And we're seeing increasingly a lot of focus on bioactive ingredients or pre-postbiotics as you know, therapeutic mechanisms, and the standards and the regulations are evolving super quickly. So what we're trying to do is enable that scientific journey, but also match to the evolving regulatory environment so that we really can enable delivery of robust scientific claims associated with these uh, various foods. So do you think that the data and the robustness is going to lead to a place where you know, everything's provable and, we, you know, we're not talking about fads, particularly with microbiome, you know, because I'm sure there are lots of people out there talking about lots of different things. Some of it will be pseudoscience and some of it, you know, people have no idea. So do yeah. you think that the data will prevent people sort of moving down a, a bad road, I guess, when it comes to this space? It absolutely must, Matt. You know, and I'm sceptical about the ability in the short to medium term for us to build the model from the genome through multiomics up to try and understand, you know, impact. But that's why we're applying a different approach, network science, to try and create understanding of correlations and then causal analysis to try and elicit signals that are reliable across a range of data types. What's interesting is now we are starting to see biotech and pharma companies also focus on the microbiome. And if we take the most interesting area currently, you know, people are looking at cancer interventions, immuno-oncology interventions, and recognizing that uh, dysbiosis, damage and damage to the gut microbiome, impacts efficacy of these treatments. So I think uh, we are starting to see the networking of the microbiome dimension back into our systems biology models. And I think that's a journey that's not going to stop. It's only going to accelerate. I think as well, to add to that, like, you know, cowboys are always going to come into town, <laughs> for sure, as categories start to widen. And I think that the only way that we can kind of tackle that is to educate consumers. And that is very difficult from a well-being perspective. As Anthony touched upon from a healthcare perspective, you know, it's like, these are the studies that are coming out. This is the area of research. But from a well-being perspective, teaching consumers about the hierarchy of evidence. So here's a lot of trials that have been done on this particular thing. 
sliding scale down to the very bottom of anecdotally someone said it made them feel a bit better <laughs> and I think that that's the bit of work that has to be done and yes we can do it from a regs perspective yes the science will accelerate quickly that's brilliant but the only way that we can tackle and avoid the nonsense and the other claims is to teach consumers to spot the nonsense for themselves because then there won't be a market for it. So, you know, we talked about fads and Lisa, you mentioned your twin is growing a human being currently. (laughs) And one of the things that I came across when I was speaking to my midwife as the importance of the mother's microbiome and the impact it has on child's health. And since birth, your microbiome is impacted by your mom's microbiome. So is this a fad or is there some science behind this? What I'd say is um, the science is out. What is interesting is that there are you know, suggestions that you know, passage from the womb, which is no longer classified as a sterile environment, through the vagina, provides the kind of seeding microbiome for the gut. But it's really interesting. There are companies out there like Evolve Bioscience who believe uh, that actually it's migration of a particular bacterium, uh, Bifidobacter infantis, I think it's called, from the anus. That is the initial seeding mechanism for the gut that... Uh, translates the mother's milk oligosaccharides in the early stages to you know start the right kind of evolution of a gut microbiome but you can see from that you have camps you know suggesting vaginal microbiome or fecal microbiome you know what is it i think uh, we are still in the early stages of really understanding that and this is so fascinating and you know the first time i've even heard about microbiomes was from a scientific article published about fecal microbe transplant Is this something that's working clinically? 7,000 years ago, the Chinese were using yellow soup to remedy a range of illnesses and uh, having results. I think uh, you've seen studies to suggest that fecal microbiome transplant um, is is incredibly efficacious in comparison with a range of other medicines, but there are all sorts of dangerous challenges with that. You know, I mean, there are suggestions using mice models that you might be able to remediate a health challenge, but at the same time, you know, trigger some non-communicable inflammatory reaction or, you know, in fact, uh, you know, make mice obese on the basis of fecal microbiome transplant. Um, But I think uh, there are a lot of businesses focusing on that, you know, microbiotica in Cambridge is was originally focused on and you know amongst other things is still focused on trying to create the alternative to the you know fecal microbiome transplant by you know providing the pill that uh, achieves the same result um but i think it's um it's irrefutable that um you know in, in some way shape or form you know uh, augmenting or supplanting or reconstituting the microbiome uh, using you know um, elements that are missing has a, has an impact like we've talked about in so many areas of this, you know, yes, there is really promising studies and results for things like C. diff, which is great. But when people start to take that tiny bit of science and, you know, there you can go and pay to have fecal transplant, which is, you know, ethically wild. <laughs> and, you know, people are always going to take a bit of science and try and apply it commercially to something and do it. And I think that People don't want to hear, particularly the media, that it has worked in some cases in C. diff. They want to hear, look at this new thing, it's quite funny and you can do it too and it'll make it'll have X, Y and Z and, you know, it's like colonics have the same thing. But yeah, stuff like that is where we get asked about a lot and people all like almost try and, I don't know, glamorise all of these things as the next wellness fad and it's, um, you know, it can be quite scary 
how quickly people can take it on. So the jury's still out about these two topics and whether there's some truth to it, I guess at the end of the day, like you said before, there really is no quick fix. And I guess it's all about balance, right? Healthy diet, sleep, limit your alcohol, just keeping your gut as happy as possible. And can we can we go from sort of fads to the future then? So, I mean, what's the next big thing, do you think, in this space? And whether that's in your own companies or sort of outside in the in the rest of the world, you know, what something that really excites you, which is coming up next? What about you, Lisa? We actually had a, an amazing young scientist called Rory Robertson at the, the, the end of the first book as his kind of stargazing to the future. And I was like, go as wild as you want, pal. So yeah, as I said before, like the toilets, the personalized probiotics, innovation, brilliant, super exciting. You know, my bedtime reading used to be Nancy Mitford novels. It is now um, the future of the science of the microbiome. But I guess, you know, from a company perspective, we want to make gut health as habitual as brushing your teeth. And that's the thing mm. that excites us most, that people will stop talking about it. And that seems counterintuitive, but it will be so, you know, intrinsic into our lives and we will have these gut bugs at the forefront of our minds at all times and people will naturally habitually consider them, you know, take products, eat food based on that and they will know instinctively about their microbiome and I think that's the thing that excites us most at the gut stuff because we've started to see the wave crest onto the beach it's been amazing to watch and it's only going to yeah go further and I you know and and that's not like a really I've seen the way people's lives can be changed knowing about gut health it's not that at all it's it's more basic than that um and yeah as I kind of touched upon before democratizing all of that is the thing that gets us up in the morning so what I'm excited about is the phase shift that's coming. We are approaching the end of the digital economy. I'm not saying digital economy is disappearing, but we're seeing the beginning of digital applied to every other type of economy. And we are seeing a phase shift. You know, people talk about the fourth industrial revolution and hello tomorrow and we're a hello tomorrow, deep tech 500 global company. Talk about this nature co-design, fourth industrial revolution being bio led industrial revolution. And I think that is coming. The integration of understanding of microbes and microbiome into so many domains, soil health, agriculture, food production, gut health, etc. It has inordinate transformational potential. And I think uh, it also is encouraging us to possibly even you know, rethink our models of disease and wellness, but also rethink our fundamental assumptions about what life is and, you know, whether it's a distributed system or whether we're individual entities. All of that's great, I think. And I think it's necessary because we've got to move away from the extractive, destructive practices of the previous industrial revolution towards a better economic paradigm, exploiting nature, nature co-design. And that's the thing that, you know, having an impact, working with these large enterprises that are, if you like, at the juncture looking upstream at making sure that we are trying to focus on biodiversity in the soil, thinking about biodiversity from the microbe up to preserve the soils, because unless we do that, we only have maybe 60 harvests left in the soil, towards no longer just focusing on delivering calorific content to humans, irrespective of whether that's healthy or not, towards focusing on the health benefits of food. These enterprises have such a significant stakeholder role in transforming the way we, we live as a society. I think the opportunity to be involved in helping them shift is super interesting for me. Incredible. 
Wow, very, very wise words, Anthony. Thank you so much for that. It seems like a, a very nice place to start wrapping up the episode as well. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure chatting to both of you today. I knew this was going to be a fascinating episode. I'd love to stay on and talk for hours and hours more and more about this. Just before we kind of officially close, then what would be your key takeaways that you'd want everybody who's listening to this podcast to know about the microbiome? Lisa, what about you? I guess it's unique to you, even if you're a twin. It's really important. And nice. hmm, you can change it. It's within your control. And what about you, Anthony? I don't know. I can, I can match or better, Lisa. What I would say is um, just remember the term because I think it happens to everyone. You know, the microbiome is invisible to everyone until they hear the term and hear the definition and then they see it everywhere. So just keep it in mind is what I'd say. And Lisa, finally, so where can listeners go for more information about you and the gut stuff? Very easy. It's just (laughs) thegutstuff.com. Or Instagram is probably like our most active platform. And yeah, we wrote a book with 18 of scientists and experts, which is just like a really kind of simplified version of the science from lots of different areas. So it's quite a good starting point because it comes from a lot of different viewpoints. So yeah. If you have a rainy day. Amazing. And what about you, Anthony? So where can listeners go to find out more about either yourself or get in touch with you or Eagle Genomics? Yeah, so www.eaglegenomics.com or anthony.finbo at eaglegenomics.com. Perfect. Yeah, simple enough. A fascinating discussion and it's been really amazing to talk about this. It's such a complex area, but, you know, I think we've really helped to kind of clarify a lot around this. So just wanted to say big thanks to to you, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is how to get back to actual work now. (laughs) I've tried too much how I do this. To real life. And and thanks also to you, Anthony. Matt, Lakshmi, Lisa, thank you very much. It was such fun. Great fun talking to you. Great stuff. Thank you. So everybody, this has been the Food Fight podcast as ever. If you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu and join the conversation via hashtag EIT Food Fight on our Twitter channel at EIT Food. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. That's it for now. Thanks everybody for listening. Mm-hmm.